You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests will join us on the Goodyear hotline, and we're going to go there in just a few minutes as we'll get some expertise from Green Bay on what's happening. But we start with the Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless, and that is now that we're finally at the point where training camp is ready to start and everybody has all eyes on Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. Sarah, it looks like we've taken a gigantic step closer to the kumbaya most people hoped would happen it looks like concessions are being made last second agreements are finally happening and there's at least a chance that Aaron Rodgers is going to come in and everything will be just fine in Green Bay yeah it's weird because it feels like it's what I expected right I didn't think he would retire and he had any number of opportunities to announced that there was no way he was coming back to make clear that there was absolutely no reconciliation possible. And he never did. He never came out and said that he had plenty of opportunities to flat out say he wasn't coming back. And in the past, he's been a guy who, while frustrated with the way the Packers have handled things, has always showed up on time. This is the most we've ever seen Aaron Rodgers step outside of what was expected of him. And we've often talked about that because it's difficult in football to do the kind of holdouts that you see in sports like the NBA. So this is not that surprising. What's surprising to me, Fitz, is the the very small amount of information we have thus far on exactly what those concessions are that are allowing him to return in good faith. And and one of the questions we have is this idea that by voiding the final year of his deal and making it possible next year, after this season, for him to be traded and leave and be more in control of his future, it still feels very dependent upon the Packers basically saying, yep, We'll make sure that's okay. But is it in writing? Is it guaranteed? We don't have that many details yet other than Schefter and others reporting this saying it feels like that means it's over. And by it's over, I mean he'll report and play this year. Well, and that's, I think, what's, what's difficult because, as you mentioned, and you know, th- there's a year that's taken off this deal, and that's substantial. I'm not taking anything away from that. But after that, it all comes down to what's going to happen next year, and there's a lots of ifs and coulds. Uh, one thing that Adam Schefter did point out, uh, we'll let Adam chime in now, ESPN NFL Insider earlier on NFL Live, was that this is about creating a path for Rodgers and his next step after this season. This is about the way things are run. This is about structure. This is about creating a path for Aaron Rodgers to leave Green Bay potentially after this season. The Packers have voided the 2023 season on Aaron Rodgers' deal, which was the last year in his contract. And they've also agreed to promise to review his situation after this year. So if Aaron Rodgers still wants a trade after this year, he can get it. It's interesting, Sarah, because I hear a lot of promise and a lot of trust me. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm watching a divorce where everybody's saying, hey, don't worry. We're going to work all this stuff out. Just, tr- just trust me in that process. And that always sounds good when things are good and never works out when things are bad. Agreed. And the other question I have is the follow-ups that can't be completely written and are more promised and suggested. And Schefter followed up with... Rodgers being allowed in on more personnel decisions, but if the intention is that he's probably gone after this season, how many more personnel decisions are there to be made and how involved can he be? Here's what Rodgers, I mean, Schefter said. In the past, I think the Packers have gone to Aaron Rodgers and said, we want your input into some personnel decisions that we make. We're going to include you on some key personnel decisions that you make. 
only to not do that and not follow up and not right. include him. And I think now, going forward, Aaron Rodgers, I think, is going to be included and consulted. And they're going to do things, I think, to try to make him happy. I think those are the kinds of things that in this potentially last season in Green Bay that the Packers will look to avoid if they're hoping to improve the relationship with Aaron Rodgers. Hmm. I just I, I struggle with this because everything we just heard there again was, hey, they haven't done this in the past, but now feels like they probably will. Like that just doesn't feel I, I guess I expected that when we got a re- resolution to this, that it would be very definitive why we got a resolution, what changed. And I feel like right now, while we're saying one thing definitively that the end of this contract is gone, everything else that we're hearing just feels so speculative around what we would presume everybody's going to do. It can't be that simple, can it? It's Spain Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. I don't think it's that simple. There are a couple things that I have questions about. Number one, we haven't heard Aaron Rodgers speak almost throughout this entire thing, right? What we even heard was that he was very disappointed that the news of this you know, departure from the team, this cold front had hit during the draft, right? All we've ever heard through any sources is that he was disappointed in the timing of that and it was not his league and it was not his people. So if we know that all the information coming to all the reporters who have been covering this for a month is coming from the Packers, then are they trying to soft shoe this to say, well, yeah, here's a couple things we're going to do and we're going to be fine instead of basically saying we tucked our tail between our legs and gave him what he asked for and it's what we should have done months ago because we really effed this up with our Hall of Fame quarterback who was the MVP last season and it left us because of the way we handled it with the potential of having to start a guy who hasn't played a single game or suited up for one, right? That could be what's missing here is that the details are yet to come because the people who are providing the latest concessions and details or lack thereof are people who aren't really interested in us getting all of them right now. And Lewis Riddick seems a little bit onto that because when he was on NFL Live, our NFL front office insider said he feels like there's more coming. Other than the fact that he could possibly hit the market next year and or go to a team of his choosing if they decide to trade him, there has to be something else in the interim that he says, okay, this is what will make me happy over the next four to six months. Something's going on here. I think that, you know, the Devontae Adams contract cannot be the only thing that all of a sudden now is back on the table. Somebody else is coming to this football team or something is going to change in a very tangible way to make it look like it's not just the same old thing that we're going to do like we did in previous years. I mean, I feel like that, Sarah, has to be, by the way, that's some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. That has to be the only way we can wrap our minds around it because... Otherwise, none of this feels like it makes sense. And that right now we're all just sort of grasping at it. It, it, it feels like that it can't be that simple. There has to be more to it. There's got to be more we're waiting to hear. And until we hear that, I don't know how to view any of this realistically. I mean, I, I want to sit here and say, wow, this is amazing that everybody came to this solution. But it just feels too simple, too perfect, too buttoned up. And there's too little concession in my mind to what Aaron Rodgers wanted and to where he wants to go. So to that end, we're going to keep the discussion going. We want to bring in someone who knows the Packers very well. We'll get a take from somebody that knows the team as well as anybody within the organization. And we'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The biggest story, obviously, for everybody right now as we keep all eyes on training camp is what's going to happen between the Packers and uh, and Aaron Rodgers. We've had all eyes on that for months, it feels like. And today, 
we find out through multiple reports that we're, it looks like a step closer to everybody singing Kumbaya and things being just fine. There's been some concessions, but I think Sarah and I have agreed so far. It feels like there's just more there. So we're going to get some expertise. and We're joined now on the Goodyear Hotline by Jason Wildey, the Athletic Packers reporter. Uh, you can check out Wildey and Tausch on ESPN Milwaukee. Jason, always appreciate your expertise, man. I'm really trying to wrap my head around this because I guess I expected there'd be something huge in concessions, and it feels like it's a year off a contract and now a promise that, hey, we can – revisit this is it that simple yeah i'm trying to wrap my head around it too jace i i I don't know to what degree rogers has successfully taken back some measure of control of his future now this idea that they're going to review the rogers situation i think is the phrase that adam Schefter used in his story uh after this season um I've gotten the impression that that's something of a euphemism of if you're still unhappy, then we'll trade you. But it's not like he's getting an opt-out or a player option, you know, an NBA-style player option that would allow him to walk out of this and choose his own team a year from now. Like, that part of it is not exactly clear. And so if he... I guess he would have the ability to convince them this is the team I want to be traded to, and David Dunn, his agent, would be able to work on making that deal happen with that team. But he's not going to have unfettered free agency after the 2021 season, which I think a lot of us thought would be the concession that would need to happen in order for him to report to camp. Wilde, let's go back a minute, because I think one of the things we've been trying to figure out throughout this entire cold front is what does he want? And everybody said it's not about the money. And it felt like early in the offseason, there was an opportunity for the Packers to restructure his contract so he wouldn't feel like a lame duck with no guaranteed money on the books so that it would make it easy for them to move on from him if they wanted. And that he would feel like he was respected and treated well for someone who was an MVP, former Super Bowl winner, future Hall of Famer, instead of being at the whim of a team that had already picked up his replacement. What's different now in whatever these new concessions and scenario is that we feel like makes good on any of the problems he had with how things had gone up till now. Yeah, I don't, Sarah, I don't know how much is different. I really don't. And, and look, I I will say this. I still will believe, and, and hopefully we'll talk to Aaron soon about this uh, publicly and not just privately about had they come to him right after the NFC championship game and said, look, we were wrong. We thought you were in decline. We drafted the kid. We didn't need to do that. And we want you to be our guy for as long as you want to be the guy. And so we're going to tear up the existing contract. We're going to guarantee a bunch of money. We're going to structure it in a way that you're our guy as the starting quarterback. We cannot move on from you in any way through the next three years. And I think he signs that deal and loves the idea of being the guy here and fixing whatever cultural issues he sees existing uh, from his conversation with Kenny Mayne in May, I think he signs that deal and fixes those issues while being the quarterback and the leader of this team. And it never gets this ugly. Instead, you have to understand one thing about Aaron Rodgers. It's not just what you do, but it's also how you go about it or the timing of it. And we saw reports from Adam Schefter and others that there was an offer on the table to add two years to his contract and make him the highest paid player in the league again. Well, after that wasn't done right away, it 
seems to me that Aaron Rodgers didn't want that anymore. Instead, he wanted to have control over his future of, hey, if I want to stay, I'll stay. But if I don't want to stay, I want to do what Tom Brady did and go to a team that will do everything it can to roll out the red carpet and make me happy and create a team around me that I think can win a Super Bowl. And that's how I think we got to where we are today. But I just don't know how much more control he has. He has a little bit more for sure, but he certainly does not have as much control as I think he wanted to have over his future. We're talking to Jason Wilde. You can check him out, the Athletic Packers reporter. Jason, how much does this quell whatever conversation there was going to be about locker room and what it all means for the, the sort of the tone behind the scenes for him and for Gundekust? Yeah, I think from a locker room perspective, you know, we saw Bakhtiari posting a, a photo of the two of them working out uh, at Proactive in L.A. Like, Devontae Adams has been on record saying this. They, the guys in the locker room didn't have a problem with what he was trying to do. Um, and, but I think that the problem would have come in, let's say he doesn't report to camp, and let's say they go a couple weeks into the season and they're losing and he's not there. Um, at some point, your guys who you said you love, right? That's what he said to Kenny Mayne, how much he loved his teammates and loved the coaches. At some point, they were going to say, come on, man. If you love us, would you come back? We're dying here, if that was the scenario. So I think well, but heads you, Don't off. you think those things don't necessarily – you can love your teammates and still say that respect for myself and the way that I've been treated and the terrible communication and everything else – I can't simply ignore that for the sake of those other guys, especially if I've given them every opportunity in the past to not do this again, and they did it again. Right. No, I agree, Sarah. From from Rogers' perspective, uh, I don't think that he ha- he would have to do that. But I think from a as his teammate, don't you think at some point you, you probably shift gears if it would have come to this, and it looks like it won't. Again, that has not been finalized, but. As his teammate, wouldn't at some point you be like, come on, man, like, I understand what you're trying to do here, but we're dying, and we're not going to, like, again, right. I'm not sure what I guess Jordan especially Love's if he's not become. communicating, and we don't really know if he is, right? If he's not right. able to tell them very clearly behind the scenes what motivates us and everything, then that would, that would hit a lot different than if he is. And, and we also don't know, you know, maybe Jordan Love is going to turn out to be a really good quarterback. I am not willing to say that that's impossible. What I am willing to say is that Brian Gutekunst, who traded up to draft him a year ago and change, has said on the record, said on draft day this past year in, in May, that Jordan has a long way to go. So I think every indication we've gotten from the organization is that if Jordan Love had to play as the starter this year, they'd be in real trouble. And I think the players understand that. And I think that is one of the reasons why, for Aaron Rodgers anyway, this will be a big win for all the people that he loves. They will all be thrilled that he's there. I just don't know how much of a win it is for him until we find out more details about what these concessions are. Jason Wilde, the Wilde. Athletic Packers reporter of Wilde and Tausch is with us on ESPN Milwaukee. We only got about a minute left. Really quick question for you. Um, Murphy's made it sound like, oh, the, the fans are very split. Some are on our side, some are on Aaron's side. Does that sound realistic to you? And do you think those fans... Um, are really thinking hard about Aaron Rodgers in this case or siding with the man, those who are on the Packers' side, because they just wanted to be over and him to be in camp? 
Yeah, Sarah, you you know that I'm not very good at short answers. Uh, once I had to be kicked off of KJZ while that show was ending, I was talking too long. Uh, yeah, the show. I will just say off. this: <laughs> there were there were some snarky comments being made by fans in support of Rogers during the shareholders meeting uh, today. I would just say this: I don't know if public opinion was as negative toward Rogers in real life as it appeared to be on social media. And it'll be hard to measure beyond that. But I, I, I think there are plenty of Packers fans who are old enough to remember being fans of a really crummy team in the 70s and 80s that don't want to go back to that. There may be some that have been spoiled by 30 years of Hall of Fame quarterback play, but I think there are others that wanted to see this resolved and see Aaron Rodgers and not Jordan Love or Blake Bortles or Kurt Benkert under center <laughs> uh, on September 12th in New Orleans. Willie, just the fact that you just said 30 years of Hall of Fame quarterback play just, oof, it makes me a little sick right there. We appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for all the expertise from the uh, from the Milwaukee area. We appreciate it, Jason. Anytime you two and Stash call, I'm ready. So good to hear from you guys. <laughs> Take care. Always appreciate it. Sarah, I, I think Willie makes a great point. It's just going to be difficult to know exactly how all of this came down until we get – more information. Something you and I say right. a lot on this show is like, let's get all the information. Yeah. Because right now it just continues to feel like we need more information to figure out exactly how we got here and exactly what any of it means moving forward. All right I now, know is that the- Will Dees found a Sarah Spain bobblehead at a Goodwill in Wisconsin and he did not buy it. So he's kind of dead to me. I'm impressed that I made it through that without attacking him. Uh, Wildy should have bought it. I would have bought it from him. All right, ton of Olympic news to get to. We'll get you updated on it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I'm definitely watching all of the primetime Olympics and then occasionally figuring out how to dabble in some of the others. I can't do the 3 a.m. <laughs> I'm just, I'm getting too old for it. And this radio show goes too late. So I, I, I apologize to anyone who judges me for that. But the primetime stuff has been fantastic. And as always, I am deeply into the Olympics. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Summer Games News and Notes brought to you by California Almonds, representing your country or representing your trivia team. Almonds are natural fuel for the best you. California Almonds own your every day, every day. Joining us now to talk about the Olympics from the Washington Post, one of our faves, Sally Jenkins. Sally, thanks for the time. Sure. Let's talk about some of the standouts from this. A couple disappointments from the men's basketball team, the women's soccer in their first round, but some really exciting things that have sort of been a surprise for a lot. And I think one of the biggest ones is the what they call three times three basketball. Uh, the men did not qualify, but the women, including uh, the Chicago Sky's own Steph Dolson, have been dominant, and it's really fun to watch. Are you surprised by the reaction to it? I am a little bit because I was looking forward to it, but, you know, I'm just such a women's basketball nut that I thought it was my own private little interest, and uh, I'm delighted to find out other people, you know, find it as interesting as I do. It's the half-court game, you know. What's great about it is, uh, and it's no no surprise that, you know, um, a couple of, you know, a couple of, like, it's no surprise Steph Dolson excels at it, having played at UConn. I was a little surprised, though, Sally. I mean, I've fallen in love with it. I can't stop watching it. I've watched some of the big three on the men's side over the course of the years in the States, but it's the pace of the 3x3 that I just didn't expect. I mean, is what, what have we all missed in this, and even in the prep process of being ready for it? That it's pickup basketball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's what it really is. 
Um, it's 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 the pickup game. I mean, you've got to get it back out to the perimeter, and then you you know you can uh, you can be real creative. But there's also if you if you work it right, there's a real premium on on great passing and cutting and moving, which is what speaks to the UConn um, you know in Steph Dolson. Um, but also, you know, you can just sort of muscle your way to the basket too. So it's, you know, it's street ball to a certain extent, but, but, you know, but even in that context, it's, it's execution really wins. Sally Jenkins is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Let's talk about Katie Ledecky, uh, very prescient of the NBC folks to have that big, uh, profile, of, of her biggest competitor out in Australia. And as it turns out, Katie Ledecky actually human, silver again in the 400 freestyle. <laughs> she has a couple more races to wow us. But was that as, as big of a deal as some are making out or as small of a deal as others are saying, oh, we could have expected this? Um, because I've seen both. I've seen people say, I don't know what to believe anymore. I've seen people say, yeah, you know, that, that was going to be a tough race for her. Well, if you follow swimming... In general, it's not that surprising because the Australian-American rivalry is always epic. And whenever anyone from either side of that rivalry sets some sort of world record, like the other country immediately starts chasing it and trying to find a prodigy, you know, whether it's Ian Thorpe and Michael Phelps or whether, you know, it's Katie Ledecky, it it just is a a great, great sports rivalry. I mean, I mean, Well, and Titmus had beat her before, too. So very specifically that rivalry, not even just the countries. yeah. Yeah, No, she beat her at the World Championships. And, of course, you know, that happened to Phelps a time or two as well. I mean, Phelps always used it as huge motivation when an Australian, you know, whipped him in a race, a pre-Olympic race. It almost set, it almost teed him up, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, look, the, the Australian-USA um, uh, swimming rivalry is always great. The, the USA doesn't expect to have rivalries unless they're from Australia, um, they tend not to see rivals coming because they're so dominant. So I think NBC did everything that it possibly could to sort of whip up a sense of rivalry for Ledecky. And, you know, it's inevitable if you're a Ledecky or a Michael Phelps, you know, eventually some people are going to come chasing you and a couple people are going to catch up at events that, you know, aren't necessarily your absolute um you know that you're not the mightiest person in the in the on the face of the earth at. So, you know, was it's not that surprising in the overall context of swimming is what I'm trying to say. We're talking to Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post. She's covering the Olympics there on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So, Sally, I do think it's interesting on the swimming. Uh, I've read a couple of articles and heard them mention it a little bit in the broadcast last night that the timing of races has been changed because frankly, we want to get these swimming events on uh, in the primetime moments here for, for the U.S. So what kind of impact does that actually have on the swimmers? You know, I, I think swimmers are so used to, like any athletes are kind of so used to being jacked around for television that I'm not sure it has that big of a effect. I mean, I think they know what to plan for. They're, they're pretty synchronized in terms of, um, I mean, you know, if, you, if you've ever talked to Michael Phelps, um, they literally, like, Okay, like one of the things Phelps and Bob Bowman would do was like two years in advance of the games, they would visit the pool he was going to be swimming in, swimming in at the time he would be swimming. So they'd get him up and and have him go over to that pool and like do a workout at that pool at the time they thought he was going to have to be swimming. So like they're, they actually synchronize this stuff really, really carefully. I mean, swimmers where it's going to be a hundredth of a second, potentially their attention to detail is not to be believed. 
Sally, is there a reason why, and Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post with us here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, it feels like Caleb Dressel, I'm getting some of the coverage and some of the hype, but it feels less so than the Ryan Lochte, Michael Phelps. Is it because he doesn't have that Phelps next to him? that he Because good-looking dude has won previous Olympics, is back looking for a bunch of gold. Uh, I, I just feel like I'm not getting that big storytelling around him like I would expect. Yeah, well, you know, we had the biggest story of a generation for so long in Phelps. I mean, for, um, you know, for three, four Olympics now, right? Um, we had a, an absolutely titanic figure. And so anyone is going to feel a little less magnetic by comparison. I mean, you know, Sarah, look, let's face it. Like, we go all the way back to Athens with Michael Phelps, right? I mean, he's this skinny kid in Athens, and, and then he, you know, he just builds and builds and builds and builds. And so now it kind of feels like, you know, the wave broke, and you're just sort of standing there on the beach going, okay, well, is there going to be another swell coming? And well, and I guess Lochte like, had a very specific kind of fame as well, right? It, uh... Yeah, he did. He, he did. He, and, he, and he had... <laughs> He had, um, you know, he had kind of the, you know, the rogue um, persona. And then, you know, when he couldn't make it to another Olympics, it, it just kind of feels like a transition year, right? It feels like a transition generation. And, and, and let's face it, like swimming is kind of most year, you know, most, most Olympic cycles when you don't have a Michael Phelps, um, you know, it really is just a kind of a four year to four year cycle. You, it, it, we, I think are sort of still suffering in the backwash of Michael Phelps. Hmm. We're talking to Sally Jenkins. You could check her out on the Washington Post covering the Olympics and everything else there. Sally, obviously we were all watching last night for the women's gymnastics scene. We're used to such precision. It wasn't that precise of a night from Simone Biles, who still was better than everybody, but it was less than we're used to from the perfection that she usually gives us. What's your level of concern moving forward in the Olympics? You know, it's funny. I was just rewatching the tape of that floor exercise, and and you go, how did she fly off the mat like that? Um, because it seemed like such a gross error. But when you rewatch it, it's really just about her energy across the floor. You know, she's just she's there. She's ready. She she's been waiting an extra year to compete, and and I really think some of it was just sort of opening night adrenaline. And I think they'll adjust. I really do. Uh, it was not like sloppy. It was just, you know, over ready to me. Yeah, I saw a definite clickbait headline. The U.S. loses to ROC in the qualifying, even though there's no losing <laughs> or winning and it doesn't matter. And they qualified and that's all that counts. But it was mostly the difference between Simone Biles being Simone Biles and what she was in that competition, which was which was frankly sloppy and yet still qualified for every event, which is another reminder and of her greatness. Right. Yeah. And by the way, in that floor exercise up until that moment where she, you know, she just sort of over, um, you know, just over rotates and steps off that mat. I mean, she's freaking perfect right up until that moment. I mean, yeah. she's her the height is unbelievable. The energy is unbelievable, you know, and in, and in, and actually that's where she can go a little bit wrong. Sometimes it's just a little bit too much energy in what she does. But I didn't see too much wrong with her. I'll be honest with you. Well, and her degree of difficulty is so high that when her execution fails a bit, she's still scoring out of a much higher of possible points, which is why she can have those slip-ups and still manage to qualify for every event and be as good as she is. Hey, Sally, thanks so much for the insight. Always fun to talk about the actual games portion uh, while you know, keeping in mind in the back of our heads everything else going on in Tokyo. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Sally. Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post with us here on Spain and Fitz. And a reminder, Fitz, that I do... Uh, 
enjoy being able to talk about the people that are out there living out their life dreams and, and operating with a little cognitive dissonance about the other stuff going on, um, because I think they're both important to talk about. So nice to actually have a conversation about the people doing well. And there are people not doing well. Uh, we're going to talk about them, too. Uh, coming up next, <laughs> one of them is the European Handball Federation. And if you didn't think we'd be talking about them tonight, you were wrong. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Lights and lowlights from Tokyo. One of the lowlights, of course, USA basketball losing to France. The men, that is. Uh, also a poor skateboarder who wiped out and then caught Ooh. the old twig and berries on a on a piece of apparatus. If you haven't seen that highlight, pretty sure it's easy to find on the old Google machine. Uh, it's Spain and Bits, Sarah Spain, Jason Bits, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We'll get to some of the other highlights and lowlights in the actual Olympics, but there's a related story. A lot of people are conflating it with Olympic competition because it's not a sport we often hear about and the photos and information are going around at the same time as Tokyo, but the Norwegian women's beach handball team is not competing in the Olympics. Beach handball is not a sport in the Olympics. It's set to debut, it's under consideration to debut in 2024. But the story about them being fined by the European Handball Federation because they wore spandex shorts instead of bikini bottoms has gone viral to the point that Pink, the musician, commended them for protesting the sexist rules and said she would pay their fines for them. First of all, the fine is, is very small, but it's obviously more about bringing attention to it. And I did my parting shot for Outside the Lines on this last week, Fitz, because this was happening. And, and by the way, the very specific rules tell you that you have to have a bikini bottom of a close fit with a cut that moves upward toward the top of the leg with a side width no more than four inches. Right. It is incredibly specific. And I will let you know, to no surprise, that the male competitors wear a tank top and shorts. OK, the women Sounds are more comfy required to wear a bare midriff top and bikini bottoms to the specifications that I just said. They decided to wear spandex shorts. They were fined for it. And it happened simultaneously to a Paralympic track and field athlete who was wearing the traditional race shorts, bikini bottoms for track. And a volunteer official chastised her and said they were too short and inappropriate. And it just drove home for the billionth time, Fitz, that we are constantly obsessed with the amount of fabric covering women's bodies and what those bodies look like while they compete instead of what they are doing. And we don't do that with the men. And it's frankly exhausting in 2021 to still have to be talking about stuff like this. So I'm glad that Pink is on it. I'm glad Billie Jean King is tweeting about it. Um, it's, it's frankly, I don't even, I want to bang my head against a wall that we would be in a place anywhere where Outside of your gross misogynist comments underneath a video or post on the Internet, anyone would feel comfortable with just blatant sexualization of people competing in sport. Well, and for anyone that uh, has any questions on it, a quick Google search actually took me to the IHF, the International Handball Federation rulebook. And I took the time to actually pull up the images of what are allowed and what are not allowed. And it is staggering. Like, I mean, there's a genuine page on the men's uniform that gives you an idea of exactly how long the shorts can be and everything feels like it's, and everything's very covered and we're not even talking eighties NBA shorts. Like it's all a very, very covered section. And then you look at the women's uniform and again, to your point, it is very specific on exactly the tops and bottoms. that must be worn. And it is a real difference. Like you look at it and think this is something maybe out of the eighties and it's not, it's real and it's now and it's, it's it's amazing to see this still exists. And Fitz, you look at it and you say, this is the same sport. 
So if you were to ask them what reason they had for that being the best attire for the women to compete at their best, what would that be? And why would that be different for men? Why wouldn't they be wearing a Speedo bottom? Why wouldn't they be shirtless? Right? There isn't an answer. And that's the problem. It's not about it should be bigger or smaller. It's it's about you should be able to choose something within reason, within a couple options. For instance, when I did college track, I chose to wear spandex shorts instead of the bikini bottoms. I was more comfortable racing in that. It didn't affect the race in any way, whether the person next to me had on spandex shorts or a bikini bottom. And it, that should be the case, the way that in 2012, the U.S. women's Olympic beach volleyball was part of a larger beach volleyball fight to allow choices of attire. A lot of the women choose and prefer to wear smaller bikini type things because they get a lot of sand in a lot of places and they prefer to just dump it out faster than getting it all caught up in leggings and long sleeves. But some of them don't. And you should be allowed to do that because that kind of sexualization is is often occurring when you have those smaller uh, outfits and you need to be confident in that to perform at your best. And it's incredibly frustrating for this to keep happening. I mean, it just, it, it, again, it feels like I'm banging my head against a wall. Because also you recall, of course, that historically there's also been the opposite, right? Acts of efficiency uh, in, in the size of uniforms can be claimed to be exhibitionism. Uh, back when we were talking about how women needed to be protected from their own uh, sexuality and attractiveness. And now we're going the opposite way where how are you going to sell anything unless they're mostly unclothed? Uh, and in the end, we've we've constantly lost the conversation about the actual competitions at hand. <sighs> if the uh, if the if the plan here is, hey, you can't wear a bikini bottom that's more than ten centimeters in width because we need help selling our sport, then your sport's not worth right. selling. Let's just say that. Right, right, and 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 also probably that's not actually the case for the people watching, particularly with the internet that we have today. Right, if you are watching women's beach handball. And you're like, listen, and by the way, I'm very sad right now that sport happens to be handball as I'm using this analogy. But nevertheless, I carry on. I persist. Um, If you're watching women's beach handball because you need to get your rocks off and they increase the size of their shorts by a couple inches and you're no longer able to, um, I'd like to direct you to many different corners of the Internet where you're going to it's just it's going to be a lot more efficient for you than women's handball. Speed and Fence is brought to you by my computer crew. Oh, training for a better life. Let's get back to the lose, Olympics quickly. There's a, uh, a mathematical formula that they could. But I'm going to say NBA one thing. Was they on better get up. run He's up the score in Iran. Because with, uh, point differential is going to matter here. And I can't look you in the eye and say that for sure they're going to beat the Czech Republic. Those words just came out of my mouth. I can't say for sure that they will. They should. They probably will. But with this team right now, I just don't have much trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to me is too crazy. Like we are sitting here talking about Team USA men's basketball with a they better run up the score because nothing's a given in their game against the right. Really? I mean, <laughs> I, th- that would to me was a stunning admission of where this is all come. And I realize that we're going to say, hey, there's NBA players on all of these rosters, so on and so forth. That doesn't change the fact that there's still expectations for Team USA basketball to not have to worry about running up the score against Iran to try and help get mm. into the medal round. Like that, that's, that's an amazing admission to me. 
USA uh, basketball men's, we keep needing to say that. Uh, we don't want to drag the women down to the gutter with them. Uh, USA men's basketball, yep. not the only disappointments. We, of course, saw Katie Ledecky lose to Titmus of, of Australia. She has a couple other races to get better. But there's also, and, and I don't know if it's, you know, you you love sports. Uh, you admittedly are not an athlete yourself, although you've had many occasions to fail on a big stage, I suppose, and understand the pressure of wanting to do your best. I I have trouble getting excited about the underdog if it means that the favorite has to fail. And I was watching men's gymnastics, an athlete I've never heard of from a country. I've never watched them do gymnastics before. And they're in the midst of talking about how the uneven bars is his only event. And he's focusing on this. And he's got, he's the gold medal favorite and he probably falls off. Doesn't qualify for the finals. And I'm like almost on the verge of tears. I know nothing about this person. I just know that when you're the favorite and you come up short, it is heartbreaking. I just, it, it hurts my heart sometimes. Yeah. I, there are times throughout this whole process, especially with the way they keep showing us families that are so far away from everybody in the process of competition. I find myself on the verge of just being an ugly crier throughout right. the course of the Olympics for both happy and sad depending on the minute, depending on the event. So I'm with you a thousand percent. It feels like a particularly emotional Olympics. Yeah, and then that one gymnast that tore his Achilles in April. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast, ESPN app, Apple iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch all the stuff you might miss. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guest joining us on the Goodyear Hotline and joining us now from the Houston Chronicle, John McClain. John, thanks for the time. My pleasure, Sarah. How are you? I'm all right. I'm trying to keep up with what's going on uh, out in Texas, specifically with Deshaun Watson. And there was some news today in a couple different ways. One was that there are two new women filing uh, police complaints against uh, Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. There are 10 now police complaints Two of the women uh, are not suing right now. Um, So it is both criminal and civil. And in the meantime, there is a Texans team trying to balance whether to have him in camp, whether to still try to trade him and if they can, and the NFL trying to figure out if they need to have any jurisdiction over his availability. What are you hearing out there about all of those many different sides trying to come together and figure out what to do with this player? Well, they know exactly what to do with this player. They'd like to trade him. For some reason, people are acting like they're just now trying to trade him. They've been listening to trade offers since before the civil suits came down. And then when those 22 suits were uh, inundating him, then all the teams withdrew, went into a wait-and-see mode. They would have traded Watson before the draft, during the draft, after the draft, yesterday, today, tomorrow, if teams would make them offers. Uh, people act like they're making offers. How many teams are going to make an offer, Sarah, with just what you mentioned, not to mention Roger Goodell's investigation, but police investigations, plus the 22 civil suits for misconduct and assault. I don't know of any team that's going to trade a player with so much uncertainty. The Texans would have traded him yesterday if somebody would have made him a good offer. Nobody has, and nobody wants to take on this problem until there's a resolution. There doesn't seem to be a resolution coming anytime soon. Watson is there. He won't get on the field. They've got the three quarterbacks. He doesn't want to be there. They don't want him there, but he reported to save $50,000 a day fines, which is not surprising considering he's been paying for the last five months one of the most expensive and best attorneys in the country in Rusty Hardin. And that that kind of bill tends to add up. 
So I have read writing for months that until these legal issues are resolved, nobody is going to make Nick Casario an offer he can't refuse. So, John, with that being said, are they looking to the league to step in and, and help them as far as putting them on the exempt list? Like, what is, what's their communication with the league been like? First of all, Jason, teams can have nothing to do whatsoever with the exempt list. You can't ask, you can't tell, you can't request. Roger Goodell and only Roger Goodell makes that decision to put a player on the exempt list and when to come off, how long he stays. And the exempt list is a paid leave of absence. Well, the base salaries don't kick in until regular season starts, so there's no reason to put him on there now. There's three different uh, clauses in the uh, – the, uh, Code of conduct, number two, is basically means Goodell can do anything he wants anytime. And he still could go on it when the season starts. He could be suspended at some point. Most of us believe he will be suspended for a violation of personal conduct policy. His attorney, Rusty Arden, says there will never be a settlement unless everything is disclosed, which is rare. I can't remember the last time I saw anybody reach a settlement on anything in which they disclose the numbers, but that's what Rusty Harden is insisting on. So right now, Deshaun's over there doing everything else the other players are doing. He went to team meetings yesterday with the rookies and the other quarterbacks. He has to pass physical, then he has to pass conditioning test, and they'll be on the field for their first practice on Wednesday morning. And remembering that he blew out his knee, in practice as a rookie in 2017, when nobody touched him, he just tossed the ball, took a couple of steps, boom, there went his ACL. I would think if you're open to trade a player and he's open to be traded, you would never put him on the field because they got three new quarterbacks for the first time since their first season in 02. And those guys got to take snaps and they got to get ready for the first game against Jacksonville. Man, this is such a convoluted situation. The Houston Chronicles' John McClain is with us here on the Goodyear Hotline on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. It's difficult mainly, John, because in the case of an average person, if you are wanting to investigate without necessarily punishing them because they haven't been proved guilty, you can pay them to sort of just go away for a while. And to your point, the commissioner's exempt list is used for players that are in in the regular season getting a salary – So that's not really applicable. And also, in the case of the NFL, they have to decide if they want to extend beyond that. And like your point, Roger Goodell can do what he wants. Does it serve the NFL, the Texans, everything else to simply just pull him out? And to me, that feels like something Roger Goodell might want to do, right? I mean, the the optics of Deshaun Watson being in camp and as the season gets closer, if they can't trade him, presumably being the starting quarterback for the Texans while all this is overhead – um, isn't great for the NFL, right? Yeah, no, he'll never play for the Texans again. And uh, uh, remember at the end of Roger, well, Robert Griffin III's career in Washington, they paid him to stay away, and they were worried about him getting hurt, and they didn't want to have to pay him guaranteed money for injury. In this case, they certainly don't want Watson to get hurt. I've been doing this 45 years. I've seen players get hurt at practice. He'll never get on the practice field for taking drills. Besides, they need to get Rod Taylor ready to be the starter. They need their top pick, third-round draft choice, Davis Mills, to get snaps because at some point they need to see him extensively because if he can't do it, and odds are he can't, 
They'll have to use their first pick next year on a quarterback, which could be first overall. But if all of a sudden they see Mills over, say, the last eight games and he looks good and they determine, man, this guy can be our quarterback, that could use those all those draft choices next year for position players. So it's very awkward right now. They could, if they wanted to, tell him to go home, excuse the absences, and uh, we won't find you. They could do that. I don't know, I uh, haven't seen that happen much, but they can't look for Goodell to bail him out at least anytime soon by putting him on the exemplars, which would allow him to make his $10.54 million base salary but not play. Ideally, the best time to trade him would be before next year's draft when so many teams see what they have in quarterback. With Miami, was Tua Tagovailoa going to develop? Daniel Jones, Giants have two number one picks. Jared Goff, Lions have two number one picks. The Eagles, who've been on it from the get-go, they have two, could have three number one picks. And Denver has wanted him in the worst way. Seems like they want every quarterback that comes down. They wanted him in the worst way. Carolina did too. So I think that they wouldn't get anywhere near and what he was worth if they traded him, say, in camp or, or, or before the season or by the trade deadline on November 2nd. If they do end up trading him and they can get what he's worth, what do you think that is, John? Jason, if you go back before all this, they had eight teams that I know of reached out, and Casario said, we're not interested in trading him. We'll let you know if we are. They wanted to get through free agency. Casario brought in 50 new players. 42 veterans. That's unprecedented as far as I know going into camp. And so once free agency was over, around April 1st, they said, okay, we're open for business and see if the Jets and the Dolphins bidding against each other in the AFC East. You know, they were hoping to get three ones, two twos, and a starting player. Remember, he played great last year. He's under contract through 2025, 26 years old. He had his career high every stat. They were bad, but it wasn't his fault. It was the fault of a pathetic defense and a terrible running game. But Watson was great. And so they thought they could get a slew of draft choices over the next two or three years. But I don't see that happening if they trade him, say, tomorrow or right before the season or the trade deadline. That's not going to maximize the value like it would before next season. But uh, right now, everything is up in the air. And, Sarah, you used a great word to describe it so aptly, convoluted. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, John, thanks so much for the insight. Really appreciate the time. You're the Sarah best, John. Jason, thank you guys very much. Keep up the great work. John McClain of the Houston Chronicle giving us tons of insight there on Spain and Fitz. We're going to react to what he had to say. Also uh, hit you with some Rodgers news and a very unhealthy quarterback competition going on in one place. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Got a little distracted there. There's some uh, Brizzo action happening over at Wrigley. Rizzo Bryant hugs it. Hugs at the plate after a home run fits. We only got a couple more days before I might never get to see it again. I'm so sorry. I got distracted. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain. Jason Fitz. Speaking of, we got to get back to college. I mean, to uh, Major League Baseball Bachelor. It's been a while. We got to cut some more teams. Yeah, I, I, there's teams to be cut, and you know, then I've got this side piece over here that I eliminated that I think might end up back in the competition Ooh, because of you know that's like very maybe. on brand for the Bachelor franchise. 
Someone that got eliminated that comes back and wants one last shot. I'm here for it. I'm ready to hear about it. It's a twist. Uh, It's a turn. You never know where it's going to go, Sarah. It is. Well done. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $700 on average. Call or click today and find out if we could save you hundreds on your car insurance. Great stuff from John McClain there talking about the Sean Watson situation. If it's, I don't have answers. Nobody has answers, right? It is incredibly convoluted. I do think it's a terrible look for the NFL for him to be out playing games with all this hanging overhead. But it is worth noting that the timeline on this stuff is very long. The number of accusations, 22 different women, the number of criminal complaints filed, 10 different police reports, makes this a much more difficult situation. And not that one woman shouldn't be believed, but certainly a mountain of 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 women coming forward makes this feel, at least in the public court of opinion, much more uh, uh, difficult to just trot him out there and say, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out and deal with it when all of this is resolved. And Amber Wilson, who's both an attorney and an ESPN radio host, was filling in on today, Gwilk Jr. today, and talked about it. I want to point out, she starts out by saying it's just civil and not criminal. That's not entirely accurate because while there are no criminal charges yet, those 10 police reports make this very much a criminal case as well as the civil cases of, of him being sued. So with that in mind, the rest of this information is really useful in terms of how to gauge the timeline on all this. So far, this has not been criminal. It's just civil. And civil isn't normally something that we talk about. And the reason for that is because, first of all, there's so much of it. And I don't mean these specific allegations, but there's so many civil complaints against players. And there are civil complaints against players that include allegations of sexual misconduct. But the problem with civil actions is we're talking about a process. I mean, I remember when this story first broke, and I was hearing even people say, oh, well, this we'll know more you know, by the time season starts, something like five months later. We've got time, we'll know more. And I'm thinking, how are we going to know more? These are civil cases. Absent these parties settling immediately, this is a situation that will take years, uh, plural, to resolve. These are 22 separate cases. People need to keep that in mind. This is not some sort of class action situation. These are separate cases, even though we're talking about the same lawyers. And they're separate complaints. They are separate uh, accusations. They are separate levels of discovery. So you can see how long this process is going to be. What does the NFL do about that, Mike? I mean, are you going to have him on the commissioner exemplus during the pendency of these proceedings when we could be potentially talking about proceedings that don't get resolved until 2023, 2024 with some of them. They're all going to be on different timelines as well. So it's a really difficult situation the NFL finds itself in. It's, uh, that's When you start thinking about up. some of that information, Sarah, like what, what you just heard there with it's not a class action suit. Like, I'll admit, as much as my brain's been around it, I didn't really think about the fact that 22 different cases would take 22 different amounts of time, depending on how they're represented and how they're uh, how they're fought in court. I mean, this could absolutely be crippling for everybody. And what I can't find out of any of it is a path that leads to resolution. And and I've been saying this loudly for a while now, but I don't understand how a GM right now that even wants Deshaun Watson can justify the acquisition, especially when you know it's going to take a bounty to get him. And then you're going to have to sit there and explain to your fan base why you did it, explain to your team owner why you did it, and frankly, go home and explain to your family why you took that risk for somebody that through the process of discovery, when we get to that point, you could find out so much that you just don't know today. And that's the variable that, you know, what are you going to do? Stand up in a few months and say, sorry, guys, didn't realize that all of this was true. If that turns out to be the case, 
and I realized that we mortgaged our future for somebody that can no longer play for us right now. Like that immediately gets everybody in the mm-hmm. process fired. That risk is something that doesn't even seem logical for anyone to take. Yeah. And, you know, it feels like what we're hearing that potentially if you were going to do this, you'd make the owner do it because they can't be fired for it. Right. If you're a GM or someone in the front office, you're not going to have that on your record because you're going to be the scapegoat if things go awry. And that and and that guy's not able to play for your team. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We talked earlier in the show about Aaron Rodgers and how it doesn't feel quite complete. The concessions we're hearing about, it's hard to tell. The Packers have been the ones talking a whole lot more than Rodgers. So if they're the ones feeding the media the information about the concessions in this new contract, uh, they're probably not going to say, we gave him everything he asked for. Uh, but <laughs> that being said... I don't know how to spin what we are hearing unless it is very, very much short of the full details as more than the Packers kind of winning, right? Their end game was to be able to keep Aaron Rodgers, and they're getting that. Uh, Aaron Rodgers is not really in control of what happens next season. If he wants out and he wants a trade, it's not like he gets to say to whom and how. He could just say, listen, I'm still unhappy. Let's not do this song and dance again. Let's just trade me before we waste a whole offseason pretending like we're going to get back together. That's not really a great solution for him. His placeholder has been found. His placeholder lies in wait. And the Packers get to take advantage of his MVP skill and then get rid of him if they want, which I think is what had him angry in the first place. A lack of respect for everything he's given for the franchise a completely delusional idea that they were responsible for the team's success and he wasn't and that they could just swap someone else in and have the same. And I don't know a lot of that is fixed. I think this was an example of what we talked about in football. You just don't have a lot of leverage as an individual player, no matter how great you are. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about what the Packers originally thought their time frame was when they drafted Aaron Rodgers, right? They thought, okay, we need a couple of years before Jordan Love is anywhere near ready. Well, now they're going to get at least a couple of years. And as much as the concessions right now we're hearing are they're going to promise to look at the situation again at the end of the year, I mean, I'd be stunned if there's nothing in writing for it. I I hope for everybody's sake there is because that promise feels great until they get into the season, they get to the NFC Championship game, they lose Jordan Love still not ready, and they're looking at it saying, well, we promised you we'd look at it again, but we're not going to do anything about it. And I don't know what gives Aaron Rodgers more leverage in the future. Like, I, I feel like the Packers needed more time for Jordan Love, and they just got more time for Jordan Love. I'm not sure how they've lost here in any way other than giving up one year on a contract that was a fake year anyway. Yeah, the 2023 year is voided. Didn't really matter. There's no guaranteed money on it. There are no tags allowed in the future. I don't know if that means including next year, right, if they tried to trap him with a franchise tag. Um, uh, but there are no tags allowed uh, Yeah, to your point, the concessions do not feel like enough yet. The question is whether there are details yet to come out um, that we're waiting for. Spain and Fitz, Air Spain, Jason Fitz, were presented by Progressive Insurance. We'll keep you updated on anything Watson and Rodgers. In the meantime, there is a very unhealthy quarterback competition going on with the Jaguars. Gardner Minshew was on KJZ talking about how determined he is to be the number one guy, and he's willing to do anything. I'll tell you this, man, in preparation for the competition, I haven't haven't taken a in weeks <laughs> an option for me number two is not an option I'll that. number two not an option for Gardner Minshew he's trying to beat out Trevor Lawrence Fitz it's kind of like uh I don't know when when you uh, uh when you use a porta potty this I wouldn't know I wouldn't know. number Look, two is not no, an option yeah there's no blue water in Spain this. and Fitz the podcast I'm a side. 
controversy we were going to get in college football was name image likeness and then it was playoff expansion well a conference alignment turned around and said hold my beer as it looks like Oklahoma and Texas are shaking the entire college football world to its core Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio the ESPN app Sirius XM channel 80 Sarah Spain Jason Fitz we're going to head over to the Goodyear hotline to get some expertise uh, from Brett McMurphy, Stadium College Football Insider. Brett, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. And I mean, what I'm trying to wrap my head around is that if you rewind to a couple of weeks ago, I was hosting College Football Live on ESPN on Friday, and I asked some of our people, did the Big 12 have any hint this was coming? And the resounding answer continually is no. How did we get to this point with Texas and Oklahoma, two massive brands, leaving the Big 12, and nobody knew it was happening? Hey, that's conference realignment. That's how it works. Uh, I would have I would have been shocked, actually, if, if uh, the Big 12 would have known. I mean, when the ACC added Pittsburgh and Syracuse, I called the Big East commissioner. I called several ADs in that league. They didn't know anything that was going on. They said, look, we've been meeting with them for the past month. That's false information. Somebody's selling you selling you up the road. Don't print that. And I said, well, I've got it from a good authority. Sure enough, they added <laughs> Pittsburgh and Syracuse the next day. Um, even go back a little further, the Horizon League, I think it, I forget the schools now. I think it was Virginia Commonwealth and some other schools were leaving the league. I, I got a tip on it, followed it up. I called the commissioner of the Horizon League. He said, that's absolutely not true. That's garbage. You can't print that. Well, I reported it. The next day, he actually held a press conference for the sole purpose of calling me a liar, which I appreciated. Ooh. And then literally about eight hours after that, those schools left, left his league to join another conference. So it's kind of like the cliche, the spouse is the last to know. Um, in a divorce or something like that. And that's how it is um, with the Big 12 and with Texas and Oklahoma. And I had sources tell me that that both schools reached out to the SEC back in December. At that point, they were in lockstep. They had basically decided they were going to leave the league. And the only question is where they would end up. The SEC was their first choice. And now we've progressed to the point now where OU and Texas are expected to formally apply for membership to the SEC. And then the SEC says, yes, sir, 14-0. and 0. Sorry, Texas A&M. You'll change your vote. And then now the uh, lawyers uh, get involved and figure out if it's going to be for 2022 if or if they will stay off four years. Brett McMurphy of Stadium with us here on Spain and Fitz. And we've been talking about this now for days because the first reporting of it may be happening and when. And now here we are just days later already feeling official. But... What I haven't really heard is not right now, not the next step, but well down the road. If you've got conferences like this one will be and that, you know, you've heard Billis suggesting that maybe the ACC should call up and talk about joining forces. Do you need the NCAA anymore? The amount of money that they're going to bring in. Couldn't you just drop the NCAA's involvement altogether? No, that's a that's a great point, Sarah, and that's that's one that a lot of people have thought about even before uh, this latest round of expansion. Because really, the only thing the NCA does um, is now they they basically run the basketball tournament, they run the volleyball tournament, you know, they run the Olympic sport national tournaments. They have absolutely nothing to do with the college football playoff. They don't impact that. Now that you've got the name, image, and likeness. Um, you know, their investigative bureau is kind of limited 
to their scope and what they do. And so, yeah, you if you're the if you're the SEC, if you're some of these other conferences, um, do you kind of band together and say, hey, we'll we'll figure out how to govern ourselves um, and do away with the NCA? So that's a valid question. And uh, you know, I don't look. I don't think it's this is something that's going to happen a week from now or a month from now. But I do certainly think, um, you know, by the time that the twelve team playoff starts. And I actually think it'll start before the 23 season instead of waiting till after 25. Um, I wouldn't be surprised when we get around to that 12-team playoff if maybe um, we either see the NCAA in a totally different light or they've been replaced um, by something new that, that these other um, major conferences have, have created. We're talking to Brett McMurphy, Stadium College Football Insider on Spain and Fitz there, Spain Jason Fitz. Stick with the playoffs for a second because you mentioned a 12-team playoff, but one of the contingencies in the formats we've seen proposed would be Group of Five getting an opportunity to go to the playoffs. I'm not sure I see the point of that if we're talking about massive conference realignment and huge mega conferences. I mean, how, how will all of this impact whatever the proposals are for the college football playoff expansion? You know, Jason, actually, I don't think it does. Um you know, because the the main thing is they said, you know, the, the recommendation is the highest ranked conference champions from six conferences and then six at large teams. So um, now if the Big 12 implodes and there's no more Big 12 and we go from 10 conferences, 10 FBS conferences now down to nine, then maybe they reward that and say, OK, instead of six conference champs, we're only going to take five. And we're going to make it seven at large teams instead of six, but I don't think they're simply going to blow the whole thing up. And um, you're right; it will it will guarantee at least one spot from a Group of Five conference. But heck, last year, if the 12 team format would have been in place, you would have had Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina would have been two of the of the top six conference champs in there. The Pac-12 would have got left out. So, just because the SEC is growing to 16, I don't think this will impact the playoff field at all. And and the other thing real quickly is a lot of people are like, why would OU go from the big 12 where they win the league every year? They're guaranteed a spot in the playoff. Now you're going to a league that's tougher. Well, in a 12 team playoff, you don't have to win the sec to get in the playoff. You can finish second, third, heck you could probably finish fourth over the last seven years. The sec would have had four playoff teams, three of those seven years. So if you're in the big 12 in a 12 team playoff, if you're 12 and zero, you're 11 and one, you're in, but if you have a down year, you go 10-2, and two, you may not get in the playoff. That certainly won't be the case in the SEC. Spain and Fitz here. Spain, Jason Fitz talking to Stadium College Football Insider Brett McMurphy. Uh, what happens when I bring up Notre Dame? How does that throw a wrench in all of this or, or make it even more interesting? You know, Sarah, I've heard a lot of people give their thoughts on Notre Dame, and I am a complete 180 from what everyone else is saying. So take that with a grain of salt, but I'm right. They're wrong. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, So here's the deal. Notre Dame in a 12-team playoff, they can't get a first-round bye because they're not a conference champion. Well, guess what? That doesn't matter. They don't have to play a conference championship game. So now they, they only have to play 12 games. They have like eight home games anyway. So now basically if they're a top 12 team, top eight team, they are guaranteed to host a home game in the first round of the playoffs. So that's their 13th game. That's their quasi-conference championship game. And oh, by the way, that's a ninth home game for the year. That adds lots and lots of money to the South Bend community. So that's a plus for everyone involved in Notre Dame. And then the way Notre Dame looks at it, I'm told, is that, look, if we win that opening round game, 
We're one of the top eight teams in the country. We're in the final eight. And now let's see how we do in the let's see how we do in the playoff. And if we're not in the top twelve, guess what? If we're not in the top twelve in a conference, we're not going to the we're not going to the playoff anyway. So as a consolation prize, you're affiliated with the ACC bowl lineup and you'll be the first pick of the ACC bowls because you're Notre Dame. So now you go to the top-rated ACC Bowl. You're not in the ACC. You get to control your schedule. You get to play, still be relevant nationally. You have your own television deal. And also, I think they're, they, they're either in the process of starting or have already started like a almost like a Netflix pay service to provide content. That's going to be additional revenue that they can't get when they're a member of a conference. So, Sarah, I, I may be in the minority. Maybe me and Jack Swarbrick are the only ones that think this, but <laughs> I think this is the best of both worlds for Notre Dame. And you can let all the conferences go to 16. Notre Dame will remain an independent as long as the college football playoff will afford at large teams or independent teams like Notre Dame a place in that playoff. Brett, uh, we got to let you go, I know, but in 30 seconds, if you can, what happens to the Pac-12 through all of this? USC and Oregon are still valuable brands. You know, they are. I just, I know they would be great add to that. It's crazy. It sounds to the Big Ten, the ACC. I just, I find it hard to believe the conference is going to spread itself so far out west. Um, I think the key for the Pac-12 is do they feel okay at 12 or do they feel like they need to pick off some of these Big 12 teams? to get up to 16 and basically that decision will determine if there's any more big 12 in the coming years you guys can check him out on stadium obviously follow him on twitter at brett underscore mcmurphy brett great work on this as always man thanks Spain and fits the podcast sarah we gotta have a conversation look i'm used to you being famous and i'm used huh. to the fact that you're constantly like part of the you know twitter lexicon that i'm never going to be anywhere close to but, I, you know, I'm scrolling through all of a sudden, and I see this tweet that's going viral today that says, uh, from Dr. Literature Lady, uh, that says, my uncle's crazy neighbor has a list of people who are not welcome on his front door. Tag yourself. And I didn't think anything of it until all of a sudden I see you tweeted out because you are on said <laughs> list. The question is, do you know who this creepy uncle is, and do you know why you're on creepy or creepy uncle crazy neighbor list? Do you know why you're on it? No, so let me tell you how this went for me. I recorded a couple podcasts today, um, and I'm in the middle of recording one, and I get a text from Mina Kimes on the phone sitting next to my computer by my mic, and it just says, we made the cut. And I'm like, huh, click on it, start laughing to myself hysterically. And then I start digging a little more. It's a little more complicated than that. Uh, Literature underscore lady wrote, FYI, his neighbors have restraining orders against him, obviously for good reasons. And then follows up a couple hours later with footnote, there's a whole backstory to this. This person is not mentally ill, but is in fact a complete a-hole and has made life hell for others. He is not the victim here. The people he has hurt are, see my comments in the restraining orders, and arrest, his arrest is likely imminent. Uh, she's getting thousands of responses, so she's, she's saying, you know, crazy as tongue-in-cheek. This list was in response to the latest set of restraining orders served against him. It's his own quote-unquote restraining order to his neighbors and everyone else that annoys him. He's responding with snark to the neighborhood bonding together to stand up to him. Um, and if you look at the if you look at the photo and you zoom in, there is actually a police card tucked into the door 
Uh, presumably, they paid him a visit. Perhaps he didn't open the door. Uh, tough to say. Maybe they paid him a visit, did speak with him, and then left the, the, the note uh, in his door in case he needed to reach them for any reason. Uh, so I was joking around with Mina that we should, you know, show up in a flash mob of, you know, me and several of the other people on the list at his door just to see. But now that there's all these restraining orders, I think probably not. Um, but it was going to be me. Kevin Bacon, Josh Dumel, Peggy Fleming, Woody Harrelson, the entire Clinton family. Uh, and those are not the only people on this. The cast of Say by the Bell, the cast of Las Vegas, most of the people from Ozarks, ER, all of the Trump family, all of the Clinton family, uh, Anita Hill, uh, Oprah, as I said, Peggy Fleming, uh, who is a national treasure. I'm not sure what she ever did. Handful of ESPN people, um, a bunch of people that feels like maybe he just started with one name, like Michelle Pfeiffer. And then while I was at it, it was like, you know what? Also Mackay Pfeiffer. I'm not sure why, but when they follow each other, I assume that's what happened. Um, yeah, all federal government employees right above Paula Abdul. Uh, also in all caps, Chicago people. I assume that means all of us. Uh, right above oh, the okay. roots. Again, why would you ever not want the roots to come over? Questlove is is, is spectacular. Uh, so it's Questlove a very come over anytime. interesting list. It is right now quite humorous. Uh, I'm fine with not going to this person's house. I uh, hope that that's where this ends. I, I don't think I need to know anything else about him or why I'm on the list. Uh, I presume since I'm right near Mina Kimes and Jackie Mack and Tony Reale that uh, he was watching around the horn one day and wasn't a big fan. And that's that. Uh, that yes. But, that you know, I, I, I think it's because you're super famous. I mean, just right. the page that has your name also has Wesley Snipes, Woody Harrelson, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, also, yeah, Kevin Bacon. So now Kevin I'm Bacon. two, I'm two uh, degrees of separation away. So I'm even better than the game. There's also two Elizabeth Banks. It says Elizabeth Banks, yeah. and then in all caps, Elizabeth Banks, which raises the question, are we talking about two separate Elizabeth Banks? No, I think you just needed or to double down. Elizabeth Banks just right. really tick him off twice? I mean, that's, yeah, I think, I think uh, that's it. I was also all caps, which is a little worrisome. Um, Mina, Mina and Jackie Mack didn't get the all caps treatment. And he misspelled my name. So, uh, you know, plausible deniability that it's a different Sarah Spain. But I think the location next to my around the horn counterparts makes it uh, pretty clear. Also, I'm not going to lie. If you told me that I was going to be on a list of people that somebody hated so much that they wanted to make it clear that these people were not allowed at their house, I don't think Laura Ingram, Kimberly Guilfoyle, and the entire Trump family would be on the same list as I would. I, that, I, would just, I wish, just would assume that that would not be the crossover. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, you mentioned Around the Horn. And by the way, I have to give you major props. Uh, you, you created a, a new... Of friendship here at ESPN. I say friendship, you know, flippantly and early in this uh, bonding relationship. But uh, true story, as I was walking uh, around New York after doing the morning show, uh, I walked by somebody and I had that moment where my brain was in a haze and I was drinking some tea and I walked by and I think, man, I think that was reality that just walked by. And I realized that I had stared at him awkwardly in the process of him walking by because it was reality and I've, I'm a big fan and wanted to say hi. And so I text you and said, hey, you know, because I'm thinking, wow, you're going to go to Around the Horn that day. And he's going to be like, your co-host is creepy and didn't say <laughs> hi, but just stared at me awkwardly. So I text you that just to, you know, because I didn't want to seem like that kind of guy, only to find that then he had tweeted me and said, hey, so it pays off. I had almost as I was literally leaving the hotel room, I put on a shirt that had this uh uh, T-Rex and with a pinata yeah. and it said T-Rex so. hates pinatas. Is that an homage like, to your stumpy limbs? Yeah, well, I mean, not, it was between <laughs> that and the shirt 
that had a, a T-Rex that was covered in glitter where somebody said, did you eat the last unicorn? And he says, no. So I was trying to make this decision and I was like, I don't know, maybe I should wear a different shirt walking around only to then have Reality actually tweet, did you just walk by in a T-Rex shirt? And I got more compliments walking around with my T-Rex pinata shirt in New York than I knew was capable and it created this whole friendship. Now I'm texting buddies with Tony Reality all because you yeah. realized that both of us felt awkward and we then had, we needed you Yeah, to you missed the part person. where I saw Reality Ali's tweet, and then I texted both of you, and I was like, hey, yes, that was him. He saw you, too. You guys should message each other, and then I put you guys in touch and just said, why don't y'all talk this out and uh, not be weirdos and stare at each other from across the room. But maybe my favorite part about it is that in both the text and the the tweet that he sent me, he said, hey, Jason, Tony Reale from ESPN. Like, there's another Tony Reale that I'd be like, oh, not the Tony Reale from the auto shop, Tony Reale from ESPN. Uh, Spain and um, Fitz will, there, Spain Jason Fitz. Yeah, I will say that um, I, I will give him an okay on that because it was a text message and maybe he didn't want to be like, I'm so famous, you should know me. Um, but I remember one of the first Super Bowls I covered where I was in the media area i can't even remember who i was walking around with but i think it was uh actually my buddy raj who now works at espn uh and and does a lot of the radio shows here but at the time was working for the show two live stews and he knew jim rome and so we walked by him in the hallway and he introduced me and he did the whole handshake with the jim rome and i just thought it was really unnecessary because i very clearly knew who he was and also like even if i didn't know who he was i didn't need his full name and I remember thinking, like, I'm never going to be the person that goes, Sarah Spain. Like, either you know who I am, and you know that, or you just need the first name. And it's okay if you don't know who I am. That's fine. Yeah, I just presume nobody ever knows who I am. It works out well, that way. Uh, yeah, more, probably wise more for you. That probably yeah. checks out. I mean, I, don't, I haven't uh, seen, I don't know, but I haven't seen your name on any list of famous people that aren't allowed to come over to anybody's houses in Utah. Yeah, no, I'm actually on a list of like people nobody have ever heard of that's just not welcome in an apartment complex. It's close. It's very, it's, it's very close. Uh, I, to, to pay off what I said I was going to tell everybody earlier, I'm in love with 3X3, as they're calling it. Uh, three on three basketball. It might be my most incredible delight that I have found throughout the course. Uh, of the uh, the Olympics. I, I, Sarah, I'm all in on it. I love the pace of it. I love the energy of it. And I love the fact that our women's team kicks butt. I'm only regretting that we don't have a men's team playing in it. But it is my special find of the Olympics. Which, by the way, you have failed to mention that the team involves my Chicago Sky Never heard player, of Steph Dolson, your <laughs> Las Vegas Aces guard, Kelsey Plum. Right? So we are watching our squads in action. And, you know, that revisits the fact that when they return from this Olympic break and our teams get back into action, we have a bet on the line involving avatars and gear and all sorts of stuff, depending on how those two teams finish the season. And it is going to come right down to the wire. Do we get mm-hmm. like, a, a, like maybe we get them both on after they win the gold and, and we yeah, let them Yeah, but I heard Freddie and Fitzsimmons are having both of the rosters of both of those teams on right now. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.